Hello and welcome to another week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Melbourne. It's broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network and brought to you by your local community radio station. I'm Sarah McKenzie. On today's program, we're going to talk to two workers involved in sex worker organisations, one in Queensland, Respect Inc., and one down here, Vixen Collective. Both of these groups work to promote the cultural, legal, human, occupational, and civil rights of sex workers throughout Australia. I think it will be a really interesting episode, but if you've got young ears around, you might want to have a listen first and then play it back later. You can find podcasts for our show at www.3cr.org.au slash stick together or wherever you get your podcasts. But before we jump into the show, let's do a little bit of union news. At 11am on the 1st of June, the Fair Work Commission handed down their annual minimum wage decision. Unions had called for a $50 per week raise, while retail and hospo bosses were demanding a 0% minimum wage increase, so effectively a pay cut. Unions rallied out the front of the Fair Work Commission in Victoria. Here's ACTU Secretary Sally McManus announcing the wage increase of 3.5% in front of the Fair Work Commission in Victoria. of 3.5% for all uh, minimum wage workers. That equates to an increase of $24.30 a week or $1,264.72 a year. Um, That means because of the Australian trade union movement that minimum wage workers and all award workers, 2.3 million workers will see an increase to their wages, a significant increase to their wages. In fact, it's the largest percentage increase that the Commission has awarded. It will mean a 1.6% real increase in their wages uh, from the 1st of July this year. And this is because of every single union member across the country who fought for this increase, who fought for the increase for minimum wage workers. It will mean $1,200 extra in full-time workers' pockets at least a year because of the trade union movement. So. We would like to um, uh, we would like to announce that today, but we'd also like to say this: it is a step forward towards a living wage, but it's not a living wage. We need in our country for no full-time worker to live in poverty. We used to have in our country a living wage. We won it. We were the first country, the first working people in the world to win a living wage 110 years ago, and that concept was a very simple one: that no person or their family should be full-time and live in poverty. This is a step forward today. It's a good step forward and it's money in people's pockets because the Australian unions went out and fought for it, but it's not enough. It's a step towards a living wage, but we will not rest. We will keep fighting until Australian workers, all Australian workers have a living wage and no full-time workers living in poverty. Thank you very much. Over the last 13 years, chronic understaffing in aged care in Australia has seen a 400% increase in preventable deaths of elderly Australians in aged care. Australia has no legal ratio for nursing staff in aged care like they would have for childcare services, and there's no laws to ensure that our elderly get the care that they need. 
The Australian Nurses and Midwifery Federation, the ANMF, thinks that they should be, and they've recently launched a campaign about ratios for aged care. Here's Lorianne Sharp, the Vice President of the Australian Nurses and Midwifery Federation. The ANMF really wants to send a message to all federal politicians calling for staff ratios in aged care as a matter of urgency. Um, you know, we are, we're, we're doing this to protect the, the vulnerable nursing home residents um, and we've also been listening to the concerns of our membership. So we know that from 2003 to 2016, there's been a, a 13% reduction in trained nursing staff working full-time in aged care facilities. And this has been at a time when there's been an increase to the number of aged care facilities. There's also been a 400% increase in preventable deaths in nursing homes from falls and chokings and suicides. And we're hearing from our membership that there just isn't enough enough staff on the floor to meet the care needs of these vulnerable residents. Often what's happening now is people are living longer, so they're going into nursing homes later in life. So often they're, they're, they might be suffering with dementia or other chronic health conditions, or they might be requiring palliative care, and it just isn't the number of qualified staff available to meet the needs of these residents. So that's why we are seeking mandated ratios in aged care. Have there ever been mandated ratios in aged care in Australia before? We currently have in Victoria, because we have the Safe Patient Care Act that was introduced in 2015, we do have ratios in public aged care homes in Victoria. Unfortunately, there is only a small number of them. I believe it's about 30. So we do have it in those, but it doesn't exist nationally, no. What, what we're really effectively asking for is an amendment to the Aged Care Act that would include ratios. So obviously this isn't just for nurses, as you said. It's for people who are in aged care homes and anyone who has a loved one in an aged care home. How can our listeners support this campaign? What is the ask on the public? The ask on the public is certainly, you know, share your stories, start talking to the community. They can also join our More Staff for Aged Care, which um, they can Google and and sign up to be a supporter and that way they'll get updates. Um, We're also requesting that people write to their local politicians um, and they, you know, we ask that they support our campaign to mandate ratios in aged care because we'd like to see that the the funding that is given to the aged care providers is attached to the actual care of residents. Um, we just released a report recently and that showed that the six largest for-profit companies were given over two points one seven billion in government subsidies last year, which is a lot of money. Approximately seventy percent of their total revenue. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, making two hundred million dollars in profits just in last financial year alone. But there's no, at the moment, as it stands, there's no requirement that that money is attached to care, and there's no laws that are holding them accountable at the moment. So we're seeking change on multiple levels, and we see that there's ratios in childcare. There should be ratios in aged care. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. 
On this week's show, we're talking to sex workers about sex work to discuss how these workers organize and particularly how they organize in a space which has some pretty hefty legal barriers that are faced by no other group of workers in Australia. Craig Garrett, 3CR's reporter in Queensland, spoke to Eleanor Jeffries from Respect Inc. in Queensland, which has just held a three-day conference in Cairns. Eleanor's a sex worker and the state coordinator of Respect Inc. Eleanor holds a PhD in political science and has been involved in sex worker activism for the past 18 years. Here's Eleanor. Sex worker organising in Australia in a recent sense uh, began with sex worker groups in states and territories organising together to, with a desire to change the laws. So in the 1970s and 1980s, groups in, around the country were formalised on a very local level. Some of those groups were successful with small changes to the laws, but it really was the 1975 sex worker occupation and protest in Lyon, France, which hit the international news on the 2nd of June, that made sex worker groups around Australia and in fact around the world realise that people other than their own group were doing this kind of organising. Sex worker organising in Queensland formalised in recent history in 1982 with the incorporation of a group here in Queensland of sex workers. The 80s were a time of intense police harassment of sex workers. Uh, It was when sex work was heavily criminalised and run by corrupt sections of the Queensland police, going all the way up to the higher echelons. And sex workers in South East and in Far North Queensland started organising together to talk about the impact this had on individuals and to accompany each other to court cases and to provide support for each other. How did Respect Inc. form? Well, Respect Inc. is the statewide sex worker organisation in Queensland. It is a peer-run body. So what that means is that only sex workers are able to join and influence the decision-making and leadership decisions of respect. We also have affirmative action in our staffing. So all of the people employed at respect are also sex workers. We have an office in Brisbane, an office in the Gold Coast, and Townsville and Cairns. Those offices are staffed by peer educators, And they're also supported by groups of local sex workers and volunteers who pitch in to uh, make everything run smoothly. Uh, We run sex worker-only workshops, networking and leadership decision-making groups in all of those four areas. And also on regional outreach trips to Rockhampton, Mackay, um, to Bundaberg, to Mount Isa, where respect uh, peer educators will go out and spend a week in the regions to have contact with and social events and um, hear about the needs of sex workers in regional areas as well. So the organising is very much peer-to-peer. It's in sex worker-only spaces um, and it's 
online and in written form with materials written by sex workers for sex workers. In the Victorian studios, I caught up with Jane Green from Vixen Collective. Vixen Collective is a peer-run sex workers organisation in Victoria. Here's Jane. I think it's important to realise that sex workers have always been organising um, in formal and informal ways. But a key point of sex worker organising in Victoria was the formation of the Prostitutes Collective of Victoria. And that came out of the APC, which is the Australian Prostitutes Collective, that formed in 1983. Um, and the PCV, the Prostitutes Collective of Victoria, formally organised in the late 80s. Um, and critically, the Victoria, um, it was the first sex worker organisation in the world to actually get funding from government. Around that time, the Martian Eve inquiry had occurred in Victoria primarily prior to the forming of the licensing laws that we now all work under. And that inquiry had actually recommended decriminalisation of sex work in Victoria, but the recommendations of that inquiry weren't followed through, and we were instead um, had put in place a very regulation-heavy licensing system that controlled where, when, how, and with whom sex workers work. And that's what we're left with today. There's a campaign being run by Vixen Collective and many other groups to decriminalise sex work or reform laws in different states and territories. Um, Obviously down here recently, the Victorian Liberal Party endorsed the Nordic model, which has been widely condemned by sex workers. What is the ideal legal framework for Australian sex workers? Well, I mean, the ideal legal framework, and this is recognised in Australia, but also around the world, not just by sex workers, but by health and human rights bodies and by research on where the criminalisation has been put in place and what results it produces for workers. And that's the full decriminalisation of sex work. And that doesn't mean no regulation, it just means that our workplaces are regulations like other people's workplaces. And that's what we're asking for. We're not asking for anything different or anything uh, better. We're asking for just the same deal that everyone else gets. And what would you say to people who don't think it should be decriminalised, who are vocal against that campaign? Yeah, absolutely. And and look, I think it's important to look at the sorts of groups that campaign against the human rights of sex workers. Um, And historically, those groups have fallen into two categories, either um, right-wing religious organisations that disapprove of sex work on moral grounds and seek it to be criminalised on that basis, and um, groups that see themselves as feminists, um, but essentially campaign against sex workers' human rights because they believe sex work is, is violence against women, um, which ignores the diversity um, of our workforce because there are sex workers of all genders. Um, but also, both of those positions critically don't look at what's best for sex workers or listen to sex workers about what we say is best for us which is being treated like other workers and having our human rights recognised and importantly our labour rights recognised. Are there any particular difficulties you find given that Respecting does all this organising in what I would assume is a criminalised environment? About 80% of sex work in Queensland is... uh, overseen by the police and then we have a small sector of licensed brothels that are overseen by a licensing authority 
but that also comes under the Minister for Police. What that means is that as individuals, we are all subject to police harassment, scrutiny, surveillance, particularly in the form of surveillance of our advertising. So when we advertise, we are also vulnerable to police interpretation of the wording of our advertisement, and uh, that is a big issue with prosecutions of sex workers in Queensland at the moment is the issuing of pins or police infringement notices against sex workers whose wording of their ads are perceived to be illegal by police. Um, we also have the issue of police entrapment is legal in Queensland when it comes to sex workers. The police harassment in Queensland is very real. It's something that all of us as sex workers, we face at different times. Sex workers who already experience a degree of marginality, such as migrant sex workers or Indigenous sex workers, trans sex workers, those groups also face a heightened attention by the police. So migrant sex workers are more likely to be harassed by the police. Um, and migrant sex workers make up a huge proportion of the entrapment and um, advertising uh, crimes that the, the police prosecute in Queensland. Have you found that this type of harassment stops people from coming forward to you or is it the other way around that people actually do find that the role you play and the services you provide are really important? When sex workers are harassed by police or receive a pin or are going through criminal charges, uh, often the first port of call is to contact a respect uh, office, contact one of the peer educators and find out more information about how they're going to prepare their response or defence or how they're going to plead um, with such a charge. So a lot of what respect does is providing advice and support for people who have been either harassed or fined or face criminal prosecutions by Queensland Police. And just in relation to some other laws as well, like occupational health and safety or industrial relations laws, how are sex workers able to engage with those laws? Well, technically, sex workers in Queensland have a right to be covered by industrial relations legislation and OC health and safety protections. However, the laws act as a barrier to gaining access to those protections because we are first and foremost regulated by the police. So if you imagine it like an onion, somewhere there at the core of the onion are those civil rights that we have along with anyone else that is living and working in Queensland. But at the moment, we can't get to access those rights because every other layer of policing is above and beyond the powers of civil authorities in Queensland. So, for example, if someone had a industrial relations uh, complaint that they wanted to bring forward and they came to Respect Inc. in Queensland, the support to do that, Respect Inc. 
would contact the union that covers us, which is United Voice, and coordinate an industrial relations um, complaint about how a worker has been treated by their boss. However, doing so requires uh, information and admission of activities that may put that worker at risk of criminal prosecution. So the criminal... The criminal prosecutions against sex workers are a very real barrier to taking up industrial relations um, issues or complaints. And part of what Respecting does is you've got a campaign to decriminalise sex work in Queensland. Could you just explain your aims with that? So sex workers in Queensland are calling for the repeal of criminal laws that specifically target sex workers. So as well as the Prostitution Act, there are also sections of the Police Powers Act that specifically empower police to intervene into our daily lives and our work practices to find us guilty of minor and quite superficial breaches of the law and to pursue uh, criminal charges against us. The call for decriminalisation is a call for the removal of those laws so that existing civil laws that cover any individual, any worker in Queensland, such as industrial relations, occupational health and safety, um, that then those civil laws, those civil regulations that already exist, then we are able to gain access to them. So we are not demanding new legislation in that sense. What we are asking for is to remove the police as prosecutors of sex workers, remove the role of the police in regulating the industry and allow the existing civil regulatory bodies to uh, regulate our industry, just like other industries, whether it be you know, hairdressing or bricklaying or journalism is, you know, regulated by existing civil laws. So sex workers are well organised in Australia um, and we hear that from Eleanor up in Queensland, but um, what are the barriers to unionism in the sense of unions as registered organisations here in Victoria? Well, there's a number of barriers, um, particularly here in Victoria, we're in a different situation. Uh, because around the same time that the PCV was formally organising back in the 80s, um, one of the uh, key organisers actually moved into the miscellaneous workers' union, the LHMWU, intending to organise uh, more effectively for workers' rights. And it didn't produce massive numbers of union members, and within 18 months that organiser left the union. But the barriers that are here now are similar to the barriers there were at the time, which is for any workers that have criminalisation applying to their work, and here in Victoria, anyone working outside the licensing system is criminalised, and street-based sex workers are specifically completely criminalised. We don't want to hand over our legal information to an organisation that then holds that. Um, It's not safe for us to do so. Um, And also in Victoria, private escorts are required to register with the government, um, and that creates a record that can never be expunged. That, in a sense, makes us criminal just by the nature of our work. Those records are unheld for any other kind of workers. It's a major barrier 
Uh, and the fact that we are identified as sex workers creates potential for future discrimination because obviously there's still a stigma attached to our work and sex workers are discriminated against in a multitude of ways in Australia. On June 2nd, we celebrate International Sex Workers Day. Can you tell me about how that is marked in Australia and around the world? Yeah, absolutely. Look, International Sex Workers Day um, is a pivotal day for sex worker organising worldwide. And its genesis was in France. Um, Sex workers in Lyon um, in 1975 actually took refuge in a church um, as part of a strike of sex workers across France and were supported by the Catholic Church in doing so, which is quite um, pivotal. And hundreds of sex workers occupied actually five churches across France as part of the strike. Um, And more than 20,000 workers in France took part in that action. But the reason that that's um, a key international um, landmark in sex worker organising is sex workers in France were raising concerns around their treatment by police, demanding an end to police harassment, um, demanding that the, um, what at the time were called the anti-pimping laws were scrapped because criminalising people that provide our workplaces um, and assist us in organising our work doesn't fundamentally help us. And it's also very relevant these days because the um, French government actually introduced the form of the Nordic model and so workers in France are again protesting the um, situation that puts them into um, the rise in violence against them because of that, their treatment by police, and the effect it's had on their standards of living and loss of income. So those are a lot of the same things that we protest here in Victoria, um, our treatment by police, um, the way that the licensing system curtails our ability to organise our own work, Um, And those are critical things for any workers, and we need to have that recognised. That's it for Stick Together today. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who spoke to us on this week's show. This program is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR and is broadcast nationally by the Community Radio Network. Podcasts for this show can be found at 3cr.org.au slash sticktogether. And if you'd like to get in contact with the producers of the show, you can give us a call on 03-9419-8377 or send us an email to sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. Get in contact if you want to tell us about something that's happening at your workplace or in your union. We want to know. But for me, this is my last show for a couple of months while I go on a holiday. So enjoy the voices of Matt Kunkel and Annie McLaughlin in my absence, and I will be back after this winter. And remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. My name's Sarah McKenzie, and until next time, stick together. Stick together.